Support for WERU comes from Village Soup, the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. The time's 4 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. This is Maine Current's independent local news, views, and culture for Wednesday, October 19, 2016. I'm Amy Brown. The Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, the Maine Women's Lobby, and Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights, also known as GER, held a panel discussion called Our Rights at Risk in Bangor recently. Panelists discussed the impacts of court decisions on women's reproductive rights here in Maine and across the country and took questions from audience members. Judy Carl of Gurr facilitated. On the far, my far left, your right, is Eliza Townsend, who was executive director of the Maine Women's Policy Center and the Maine Women's Lobby Center. And um, she has been involved in developing a policy guide, which I think is ingenious. It's a, it's a um, pamphlet which has road signs on it. And, but instead of the Norway, the China, the ones that you know, we see in, in um, magazines and so forth, it's different aspects of issues that affect women. And we need to find our way through that to, to um, modify what's going on now. It's called a Building a Prosperous Maine, a Roadmap to Economic Security for Women and Their Families. And um, that organization has also had two women's summit on economic security, which is affected by quite a number of issues. And um, she's also helped with having some um, forums, candidate forums, based on economic security. Eliza actually served in the legislature, and that is a grueling job. <laughs> For it was a total of eight years. Yeah. And then she became executive director of the Maine League of Conservation Voters and Maine Conservation Voters Education Fund. But luckily, she moved over to the women's issues, and we're glad to have her there. And Andrea Irwin, she is executive director of the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center here in Bangor. It's the only freestanding, independent, not-for-profit feminist health center in Maine. And it's one of 14 in the whole country. So this is really quite an accomplishment. Previously, Amory was the legal and policy director at Consumers for Affordable Health Care, which is a statewide consumer health advocacy organization. And she promoted, of course, the Affordable Care Act for five years and helped people access health coverage. Before returning to Maine, from uh, she had worked at dis, uh, Washington, D.C.-based national advocacy organizations such as NARAL Pro-Choice America to fight against the judicial nominees to the federal courts who opposed women's health and rights, and the National Women's Law Center to improve women's access to reproductive health care and economic security. Um, but before all that, she had attended Bates College, so she's been educated here at Maine, which is wonderful, <laughs> and she earned her law degree at American University in Washington, D.C., uh, College of Law. So I'm going to turn it over to them. They know far more than I do, and I know I'm going to learn a lot today. But I'm just glad to be here. Well, thank you, Judy, for that introduction. 
And thank you all for coming. I'm really excited, and I appreciate your coming inside on such a gorgeous day when it's we, we came up from Augusta and the foliage is beginning to come out. It's really beautiful. So it indicates to me that you have an interest in our rights, and as adver advertised, we, we called this uh, event Rights at Risk. I thought it would be useful to just start by asking folks in the audience to indicate some of the issues that you have concerns about. And I know that you have a long experience in working in the arena of domestic violence. That's, um, that's my concern, and that certainly lots of times concerns about domestic violence are interacting with uh, reproductive concerns. So. Absolutely. Any other issues of concern? Well, I know um, like sex trafficking has been yeah. in the paper a lot, and um, how they can get care. And how about um, any concerns? I have concerns about the fact that we're seeing over and over and over again black Americans dying at the hands of people who are sworn to protect them. Who are um, what? Sworn to protect them. Um, we have an election coming up, and our voting rights are, are uh, at stake. And so I wanted to highlight these various arenas of concern because whatever it is you think about in, in the, uh, the public sphere, whether it's domestic violence, issues of reproduction, um, issues of your voting rights, your right to assemble, your right to protest your government, um, issues related to guns or the circumstances under which the police may stop and search you, Every single one of these issues, at one time or another, has come before the federal courts. The courts matter, and they touch our lives in virtually every way. Um, and specifically related to women, decisions by the Supreme Court affect our daily lives, whether striking down discrimination, as the Supreme Court did in Windsor versus the United States, or in Obergefell versus Hodges. Those were two cases which led to the legalization of same-sex marriage in the United States. Upholding access to health care, specifically the Affordable Care Act, in the cases such as National Federation of Independent Businesses versus Sebelius, and again in King versus Burwell. And most recently, in a case with um, Andrea, I'm hoping, we'll go into in more detail, whole women's health care versus Texas. Or in making decisions that undermine a woman's ability to earn a living and to support herself and her family, as the Supreme Court did in the cases of Ledbetter versus Goodyear. We're now very familiar with Lily Ledbetter. <laughs> Lily Ledbetter filed suit against her employer, Goodyear Tire, after learning that she was paid less than her male co-workers. She lost the case because she didn't file a complaint within six months of her first paycheck, despite her report that she didn't know about the pay difference yet at that time. She lost her case, but that six-month limitation was changed as a result. The sad truth is that she lost her case. Like so many women before her, she... Her ruling established a win for the rest of us, but at her own personal cost. She didn't ever see a dime from that, that case. She lost. Um, and and um, one of the most upsetting ones to me was Dukes versus Walmart, where the Supreme Court simply refused to take up the case at all and said, you individually, workers who, were, who have alleged sex discrimination at Walmart cannot sue as a group. You can individually 
bring lawsuit. Well, people who are working for minimum wage are not likely to be able to engage attorney and bring a lawsuit. Um, so a, a really egregious case in my mind. Uh, the actions of the Supreme Court have a powerful and a broad impact on the lives of women. And it matters tremendously who serves as a federal judge. Appointments to the federal bench are lifetime appointments. So if you are named a federal judge, you will have impact on all Americans' lives, but specifically on women's lives, for potentially decades. People may serve in that role for 30, 40, or more years. Um, and so there are a couple of issues related to the federal courts. And the first is, it matters tremendously that we have courts made up of people with a wide variety of personal and professional experiences. Um, and the, uh, it's obviously essential that our federal judges have qualification, temperament to serve, but it's equally important that they have some sort of understanding of daily life. This was illustrated in a case that came before the Supreme Court in which Justice Roberts seemed to just assume that everyone had two cell phones and that they conducted their personal business on one cell phone and their professional business on a different cell phone. I don't know very many people who have two cell phones. It's not a reflection of the experience of most Americans. Um, and then most recently, Justice Sonia Sotomayor reinforced this importance of diversity because she issued a really blistering um, dissent to the majority ruling in a case uh, called Utah versus Streif in which the court found that evidence that was found in your car if you were stopped by the police, even if you were stopped illegally, could be used against you. It, she, um, she was appalled by this, and she wrote, for generations, black and brown parents have given their children the, the talk, instructing them never to run down the street, always keep your hands where they can be seen, do not even think of talking back to a stranger, all out of fear of how an officer with a gun will react to them. She brought her personal experience to that ruling. And that's why it's vitally important that we have and, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, likewise, has been very vocal about saying if she had her druthers, there'd be nine women on the Supreme Court. It's that it's vitally important that we have women serving as federal judges. Um, and fortunately, the good news is that President Obama has done more to diversify the bench than any other president. And 43% of his nominees have been women. 36% have been non-white and I believe 14% have been gay or lesbian. So that's a really exciting uh, start <laughs> at diversifying the bench, keeping in mind that um, those appointed by pre previous presidents hold lifetime appointments, and they're, so it's still overwhelmingly not the case that it's diverse. out of office very soon. <laughs> so then there's another issue related to the federal courts, the, um, and that is that it's absolutely, obviously, essential that they be adequately staffed so that cases can move forward and people can get their day in court. That seems like a dead obvious um, thing. But, um, and that's because behind every case, we, th we, we might talk in terms of the names of cases, but those are people's names often. Every, every case is brought forward because of human beings, and these are people whose lives are affected. And as the old saying goes, justice delayed is justice denied. Um, you're 
well aware that we were all shocked last February when Antonin Scalia, Justice Antonin Scalia uh, of the Supreme Court, died in his sleep unexpectedly. And um, within one hour of the announcement of his death, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell stated his absolute categorical rejection of any replacement put forward by President Obama. On March 16th, President Obama announced his nominee for the vacant seat, Merrick Garland, who was, was and is the chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, clearly a qualified individual. More than six months later, the Senate has still not held nor scheduled a public hearing on his qualification to serve. And in fact, Merrick Garland has now waited longer than any nominee in 100 years for a confirmation hearing. Maine senators have met with Judge Garland, and they both have indicated that the process should move forward and that he was well, he appeared to them to be qualified, that, that the Judiciary Committee should hold hearings. But the majority party in the U.S. Senate has refused to act. And this particular vacancy is merely the most obvious and high-profile tip of the iceberg. As of yesterday, there were 91 federal judicial vacancies across the country, one on the Supreme Court, 12 in courts of appeals known as circuit courts, and 78 in district courts. There were, in some parts of the country, that meant that there were so many vacancies that the remaining judges were carrying such heavy caseloads that they were um, defined as judicial emergencies. And this is not just a random term that I'm using. It's one um, developed, I think, I don't remember whether it's the American Bar Association or the courts themselves that have defined judicial emergencies. There are 35 judicial emergencies across the country, five on the circuit courts, 30 in the district courts. And those, that means, again, that people who have brought suit are not getting their issues dealt with in a timely manner. Justice delayed is justice denied. So far, of the 91 vacancies, President Obama has nominated 54 replacements to the federal bench, 46 to the district court, 7 to the circuit court, and 1 to the Supreme Court. Of those 54 nominees, 25 are awaiting a vote on the floor of the U.S. Senate. But they, some of those people have, have had their nominations sit for a year or more. Um, so we have a problem. <laughs> uh, today's vacancies are not the full picture, however. The average age of retirement from the Supreme Court has been age 79. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 83, Justice Anthony Kennedy is 80, and Justice Breyer is 78. And that means that if Merrick Garland does not get a hearing and a vote and is not confirmed by January 20th of 2017, Inauguration Day, the next president could nominate as many as four Supreme Court justices. Meanwhile, here in Maine, we have one of our three federal judges, Judge John Woodcock, has announced his intent to move to senior status in the summer of 2017, meaning that there will be a vacancy in Maine. And Senators Collins and King 
will ultimately recommend a nominee to the next president after what is, frankly, an arcane process um, that is not necessarily easy to follow or to influence. But we'll be paying close attention, <laughs> working hard to keep the folks who we work with and who follow us aware of what is happening there. So I will now turn it to Andrea to go into more detail about what this means to reproductive issues. This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. You are listening to Our Rights at Risk, a panel discussion that was held in Bangor on September 29th. The panelists are attorney Andrea Irwin, she's the executive director of the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, and Eliza Townsend, executive director of Maine Women's Lobby. Judy Carl of Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights, or GER, is the facilitator. Oh, thank you. Wow. It's a little daunting and overwhelming. And Eliza clearly made the case as to why we need to care and is why we need to care right now. It's clearly an election issue. Um, It should be an issue year-round all the time. But it's of particular concern right now as we get ready to vote for the next president and as people in many states will be voting for senators that um, will confirm judges and make sure that that process goes forward. I will say with a little bit of um, warning that this is my absolute favorite topic, (laughs) and the uh, topics that have been given to me could really comprise an entire semester, so I'm going to do my best to be concise. So to start, just going um, sort of back to basics, I'm going to just give a little 101 about the federal courts themselves. Uh, Again, Eliza talked a little bit about the different levels of the courts and why they're important. And this is probably stuff that you'll remember from civics or maybe a college class that you took. But it's helpful to kind of um, ground ourselves in where each uh, court um, plays a role in the decision-making process and why all of the judges are important, not just the Supreme Court, which are the judges that get all of the attention. So at the very um, first level, the lowest level, but we would never call them that, uh, is the district courts, uh, also trial courts. And as Eliza said, we have a vacancy here in Maine for the um, uh, seat being vacated by Judge Woodcock. And Maine is its own district, so for the entire state, we just have the one um, court. And then the next level is the Court of Appeals, which are the appellate courts. And so if you were to lose at the um, district court level and you wanted to appeal, you would appeal to the Court of Appeals. And there are 13 total in the country, and they're each referred to as a circuit court. Uh, Typically, when a case goes on appeal to the Court of Appeals, the first... uh, sort of bite at the apple is that you have your case reviewed by a three-judge panel, and then you can, if you lose, or if you're not happy with the outcome, you can ask that panel to hear your case again, or end up having your case be heard before the entire panel, or excuse me, the entire court of circuit court judges, and that's known as in-bank review. And then finally, of course, there's the U.S. Supreme Court, which has nine justices. It's also an appellate court. It's very, very rare to actually get to that level. Um, The court first has to actually grant certiorari, which is the process of them saying, yes, we will take your case and review it. Um, Just to give you a sense of how rare it is to go before the court, they typically hear between, or excuse me, they receive between seven and 8,000 petitions a year, and they only hear about 80 cases. So it's very unlikely that if you appeal that you will actually have your case be heard. 
um, once they do decide to grant cert, um, and that's short for certiorari, um, you will then proceed with filing briefs, and then typically, if it's a very uh, sort of landmark case, such as the example with um, the abortion case this last term, many, many groups will file what's called amicus or amici briefs, friend of the court, to weigh in on one side or the other, and then the court will um, schedule oral arguments, and then they'll make their decision. Um, in one case, that also might help sort of lay out the um, procedural uh, way that this all goes is a case that came down in Maine, came from Maine this last term, and that's Voisine versus U.S. Um, and that was a case actually brought by two gentlemen from Maine. They'd previously been convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence, and then they were banned from buying firearms. So they said that this violated their constitutional right to bear arms, and uh, the law itself bans anyone convicted of a felony from buying a gun but domestic violence was the only crime that also applied to a lesser misdemeanor charge. Um, so as an aside, this case uh, also got a lot of attention because at oral argument, it was the first time that Justice Thomas actually spoke and asked a question in 10 years, uh, <laughs> which is really incredible when you think about the amount of time that they spend on the dais hearing oral arguments when they're encouraged to ask questions. Um, many thought that this was his way of sort of paying tribute to Justice Scalia, who had just passed, um, and sort of taking up the conservative torch. Who can be sure? Um, so for these two gentlemen, in this case, they filed their complaint initially in the Federal District Court of Maine, and then they would have gone on to the First Court of Appeals. Uh, the, first, the First Circuit hears cases from districts in Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Puerto Rico. Um, randomly enough. And I thought something that was of note was that only two of the ten judges on the First Circuit are female. So, as Eliza said, we always want to be thinking about the diversity of the bench at all the different levels. So, in terms of getting to the Supreme Court, like I said, it's very rare to actually have your case heard. Um, and there are very narrow reasons that the court would even want to hear your case or that it would be eligible. The first is to determine a, a constitutional question of law, and the other, um, in this could, in both could apply, would be to resolve uh, what's known as a split in the circuits. So if among those 13 circuits, um, the different circuits were determining the law differently, they'd want to resolve that so that there was clarity in the law moving forward. Um, so that people would understand exactly what was legal and what wasn't, what was constitutional and what wasn't. Um, and then, interestingly enough, and I don't think we thought about this when we planned this event, but their term officially starts the first Monday of October. And guess what? They're starting with a vacancy. Not ideal. Um, so next I'm going to talk about um, a little bit of the history of abortion jurisprudence um, before the court and some of the cases uh, that have impacted women's health and reproductive rights. Um, as Eliza said and as Judy said, these two are very interlinked. Um, a lot of our rights are enshrined in the Constitution and the court has either upheld or protected our rights in many cases, but in some cases they haven't done as great a job of that. So. I'll try to highlight some of the better ones for you, and then we'll talk about um, the more recent case, which was a really great victory for women. So going back to the 60s, um, one of the earliest cases to recognize the constitutional right of privacy was one called Griswold versus Connecticut, and that actually recognized the right to have birth control, but just for married couples. 
So we're going way back here. Uh, and then in 1972, Eisenstadt v. Baird, the court said, okay, well, we'll extend that right to unmarried people, too. So you can also have birth control. Um, and when you hear that, it kind of makes it phenomenal that Roe v. Wade came in 1973, which legalized abortion, um, because it does seem like a bit of a stretch that that all happened relatively quickly. Um, which speaks to, of course, the enormous uh, work of all the people in the movement um, for abortion rights at that time and all the great work they did. So Roe v. Wade is probably the case that most people are familiar with. Um, It legalized abortion in the United States. It was really the landmark case that recognized that there is a constitutional right to abortion that's found in the right to privacy. Specifically, the court found that a woman can choose to terminate her pregnancy prior to viability of the fetus. The court ruled that the, um, the government cannot prohibit abortion prior to viability and that government regulation of abortion has to meet the strict scrutiny standard. Uh, prior to Roe, only a handful of states had allowed abortion. Um, New York State was one of them, for example. So this was truly a major change for women. I don't think I need to tell all of you that. Um, of course, many women were getting illegal abortions before Roe, and it was just um, a very, very bad time. So Roe was huge. Unfortunately, one of the first groups of women to really suffer post-Roe were poor women. Um, and in 1977, a representative in Congress named Henry Hyde passed the Hyde Amendment. Um, he wanted to stop all abortion, but the only option he had was to eliminate funding through the Medicaid funding bill. So that's where we got uh, a lot of the restrictions that we still see today on uh, government funding of abortion. Um, So we are, in fact, recognizing the 40th anniversary of the Hyde Amendment. This is a terrible, terrible policy um, that really prevents poor women from accessing the care they need. And unfortunately, in 1980, in a case called Harris versus McRae, the court upheld the constitutionality of the Hyde Amendment and said that the state is not required to subsidize your constitutional rights. That's a really bad case. Um, And then between 1973 and 1992, states began implementing restrictions on abortion. Um, Those included things like parental notification, spousal notification and consent, waiting periods, all those kind of incremental things that imposed on women's ability to make this decision for themselves. And then in 1992, in another pretty significant case, um, the court ruled in Casey, five to four, that they reaffirmed Roe and found that the right to abortion prior to viability um, was uh, still legal but they overruled the trimester distinction that had been used in Roe and the use of strict scrutiny, which basically means they weakened the constitutional protection of abortion. And they introduced a new framework that they called the undue burden test. And so you may be wondering, what the heck is an undue burden? (laughs) So the Casey court said an undue burden is when the state regulates abortions that has the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion. Okay. Then they say a statute with the purpose is invalid because the means chosen by the state to further the interest in potential life must be calculated to inform the woman's free choice, not hinder it. So the court essentially came up with this balancing test. They wanted to protect women's health, but also promote fetal life. 
um, so that women could terminate pregnancy without state interference. Um, and so as a result, in the Casey decision, they did strike down the spousal notification law that had been challenged, but they also upheld waiting periods. So according to the court, spousal notification was an undue burden, but waiting periods were not. Exactly. <laughs> Clear as mud. And unfortunately, even today, we still see waiting periods 24, 48, 72 hours. Then, getting into um, the late 2000s, we start to see actual abortion bans, total bans on procedures. And in 2007, the court considered um, what was the federal law, which was the so-called partial birth abortion ban, music scare quotes for people on the radio, because that was not an actual medical procedure. Um, <laughs> this was really the low watermark for the reproductive rights movement, because in particular, um, the court really relied on junk science to find that women needed protection. And they actually relied on something that the antis had come up with called the abortion, again, scare quotes, abortion regret syndrome. <laughs> they made that up. It does not exist. Okay. And this was the very first time that the Supreme Court upheld a ban that didn't include any exception to protect a woman's health. So again, very troubling. This was during the Bush administration. Um, it did not look good for reproductive rights. Then in 2014, we had a couple of high-profile cases related to reproductive health more broadly. Uh, the first was McCullen versus Coakley, and that's really a case that involves the intersection of reproductive rights and First Amendment rights. Um, and this was a sort of surprising decision because in a completely unanimous 9-0 decision, the court struck down a Massachusetts reproductive health facility buffer zone, which was created to protect women seeking reproductive health services from most likely nasty, screaming picketers outside, um, also known as sidewalk counselors, people that try to approach women and get them to change their minds as they're going inside. Uh, and this was actually um, of great interest to us here in Maine because Portland had tried to enact a similar buffer zone, and unfortunately, as a result of this case, that zone was also found unconstitutional. Can we use scare quotes for counselors? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> counselors. There's a lot of scare quotes here. Yeah, and I think in particular with the Portland buffer zone, um, I don't even know what you call this for scare quotes counseling because since they lost their buffer zone, the screaming and harassment has continued. One man has been was screaming so loudly that you could actually hear him inside the health center. Um, and there is litigation going on to resolve that issue, but it's just really, really unfortunate. Um, then we get to Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. <laughs> yes. So in a 5-4 majority of the court, um, they held that closely held private corporations, such as Hobby Lobby, and in this case it's a family company, can be exempt from requirements under the Affordable Care Act of uh, requiring, or excuse me, of providing their employees with birth control. So even though every other company in the country has to provide their employees with preventive health care, which happens to include birth control, Hobby Lobby said, well, we're a private company and we really believe in religion and we just don't want to do this. So there was a lot of litigation to come to this point. 
And here's where Justice Ginsburg really got angry. <laughs> and she read her 35-page dissent from the bench, which is that in itself is uncommon. Um, she called it a decision of startling breadth and that she feared the court had ventured into a minefield. So just a very, very troubling case for many reasons um, and, and just very, very... Um, it didn't give a lot of, uh, it, it, it was troubling particularly because it also makes us wonder, well, what do you do about all these other religious um, concerns around things like people getting blood transfusions? That's something that Jehovah's Witnesses um, are opposed to. Scientologists are opposed to antidepressants. Like, where does it end? And sort of the fact that this case could really open up a minefield of concerns. So that's kind of a very long but uh, detailed account of what's brought us to the most recent term, um, which was really a huge, huge term for reproductive rights. Um, I'm going to start with Zubik v. Burwell just because it follows up on the Hobby Lobby case. And this is the case uh, challenging the Obama um, administration's process for the birth control benefit as it applies to not-for-profit companies, or organizations, excuse me. So here we had eight of nine federal appeals courts that had considered this question actually up, uphold the accommodation process. So where the Obama administration had said, okay, we're going to work with you. We've created this separate form for people to fill out. We're going to try to protect your religious freedom. We're going to bend over backwards, basically, to, to keep you out of court. Um, eight of nine circuit courts said that was, that, that was constitutional, that their, their religious rights were being protected. But no, they still went up to the Supreme Court. So then the Supreme Court said, well, we don't, we don't really think we can work this out, so we're going to send you off to try to compromise with each other. Needless to say, that hasn't gone very well. Um, so that's still being argued. Um, but basically, the bishops have really done nothing to compromise. The whole point of the law is to provide seamless coverage and the bishops are suggesting that women that want birth control buy a separate rider for the birth control in the same way that you would buy vision insurance or dental, which is just ludicrous. And I don't think I need to tell you why it doesn't make any sense. So that's that case. And then we get to the big kahuna of the session, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstad. Versus what? Hellerstad which is a huge victory for anyone that cares about access to abortion. It's historic, uh, renews the promise of Roe for the next generation, much more than a legal victory. Um, it represents a huge shift in the way our movement talks about abortion, the way we um, embrace it as fundamental health care and not something to apologize for or be ashamed of. Um, and we won handedly. We won five to three. Uh, in an opinion by Justice Breyer. In this case, uh, the court struck down Texas's targeted regulation of abortion providers, or TRAP laws. Um, in Texas, it was called HB2. And they found that the law imposed that undue burden standard that we got from Casey by forcing women to travel hundreds of miles to access abortion care. They said that's an infringement on their constitutional rights that were originally protected by Roe and then later upheld by Casey. They also said there's no clear medical or scientific evidence to support any of the restrictions put in place that led to the clinic's closing. Um, and trap laws have been a tool of the antis uh, since the early 2000s. 
Um, since 2010, more than 300 of these sham laws have been enacted to um, really try to close clinics. They have no purpose other than to close abortion clinics and impede women's access to abortion. Um, and so when the court looked at this case, they looked at two provisions of the law. The first required that the abortion clinics, um, that their providers, their doctors, have admitting privileges at local hospitals within 30 miles. And guess what? Doctors don't need admitting privileges to provide abortion care. Um, first, abortion is extremely safe, and it's very rare for anyone to even need to go to the ER. Um, and if someone did have an emergency, they could just go to the ER. They don't need admitting privileges. You can just call 911 and go. Uh, and in rural areas, it's virtually impossible to get admitting privileges um, from 30 miles away. Um, and what's really telling is that abortion is so safe that the doctors that typically provide them, their complication rate is so low, and they're not admitting anybody, that they're not admitting enough people to to be eligible for admitting privileges. <laughs> so <laughs> you have the Texas lawmakers saying, well, this is safe. This is needed to protect women's health. But actually, it's quite the opposite. And then the second provision um, was the requirement that facilities operate like ambulatory surgical centers. Um, again, this is so ludicrous. Um, and we're talking about primarily first trimester abortion, although this also impacts later abortion. Um, as many of you probably know, medication abortion is now an option. We're talking about going to the doctor and taking a pill. And they want them to have surgical facilities to do that because it's safe. Scare quotes, safe. Um, so they impose all kinds of uh, standards around square footage and the length of a, of a hallway and having a janitor's closet. Just completely unnecessary, ridiculous requirements. Um, abortions are mostly non-surgical and you don't need to perform them in a hospital setting. Uh, they're one of the safest medical procedures in the country. Um, it's much safer to have an abortion than to carry a pregnancy to term, for example. Uh, abortion is 40 times safer than colonoscopy, yet colonoscopy is not regulated like this procedure. Um, I could go on and on. You get the point. It's, it's a sham. <laughs> And unfortunately, because of these two laws, these two restrictions that made up HB2, more than half of the state's clinics closed since the law took effect in 2013. Uh, it went from 41 to 18. And Texas is a huge state with a lot of rural areas, and that just created huge burdens for women that needed to travel to get care. Uh, one example is a woman traveling from El Paso would have to drive more than 500 miles or seven and a half hours round trip to San Antonio to get abortion care in her own state. Um, it also hurt the women living in cities because there were wait times created by just sort of this backlog of people that weren't able to get care in their own communities. Uh, and unfortunately, some women believed that abortion was illegal altogether. So we heard from people that worked in the clinics and at some of the hotlines that women already thought it was illegal, and so they were starting to resort to unsafe measures. Um, in fact, one study found between 100 and 240,000 Texas women attempted to self-abort once the law was passed. So another reminder that Gurr is um, really great at reminding us of, when you make abortion illegal, you're not ending abortion, you're just ending access to safe abortion. So, the good news is, the court said, this is ridiculous, we're striking it down, 
And picking up on what Eliza said, this was a case where the, the, the power of the female justices really came to bear. And at oral arguments, um, they really uh, stood up and stood strong on behalf of the abortion provider, Whole Woman's Health, that was bringing the case. Um, so, for example, Justice Sotomayor said, wow, you really are requiring women to drive two different days to take a pill when they could take the second one at home. Again, just like really basic stuff. But they made it very clear um, that these were the things that Texas lawmakers had wanted. She also asked about the colonoscopy question. Well, why haven't you regulated colonoscopies when the evidence clearly suggests that that's even less safe? They obviously didn't have a great response for that. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and a lot of, uh, sort of commentators felt like uh, Justice Breyer's opinion was um, really well done because it was so grounded in the evidence, the piece of um, the puzzle that has been so lacking all along. That this is evidence-based medicine meets evidence-based law, um, and that this is you, you have to really back up what you're saying. You can't just make up these ideas about things that you think are protecting women's health. You actually have to show evidence. Um, and the other really great news as a result of this case is that we've seen a domino effect. And trap laws in many other states either immediately went, um, were struck down or are now um, being prevented from being implemented. So a lot of really um, good news on that front. So unfortunately, we can't just put our feet up and, and think about all the other issues that Eliza mentioned, because that would keep us busy enough. Um, but there's still real threats to abortion access, and in particular, later abortion. Um, so right now, 15 states ban abortion at 20 weeks, and dozens of others have similar bans. And uh, th these are just based on arbitrary cutoffs that, again, have nothing to do with medical evidence or safety for people. And Congress is still trying to pass a 20-week ban. Um, and there are very many different reasons why people would need abortion care after 20 weeks, but the reasons don't matter. Um, it's still a constitutionally protected right. It's essential to reproductive autonomy and gender equality. Um, if you want to learn more about later abortion, I would encourage you to watch a documentary called After Tiller, which is streaming on Netflix, um, I believe, still. Mm -hmm. That's a really great way to just get a better sense of why people seek later abortion and what the, um, what the provider's experience is like. So that's really what's next on the horizon in terms of the Supreme Court and other courts. Um, and I just really echo what Eliza said. This is hugely, hugely important. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. This panel discussion, Our Rights at Risk, was held in Bangor in late September. We've been hearing from panelists attorney Andrea Irwin, the executive director of the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, and Eliza Townsend, executive director of the Maine Women's Lobby, as well as facilitator Julie Carl of Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights. Moving now to audience questions, the first person off mic asked what might be coming up next in the legislative session here in Maine. Eliza Townsend responded. Well, it's, um, it's a little bit unpredictable. It is, you can bet that um, with the new legislative session, which will start in January, uh, Maine had, Maine's legislature meets over a period of two years. There's a long session and a short session 
in the long session, we can imagine that the greatest hits will come forward. Um, I call them the greatest hits. They're the sort of usual laws or proposed bills that we see every two years. And they would include waiting periods. Um, they would include restricting access, requiring a parental permission for a, a minor. Um, now that the trap laws have been struck down, uh, hopefully that will not be the case. But <laughs> we can bet that there will be additional proposals. We had long before what passed in North Carolina and Arizona, we had there was a proposal brought forward that was a religious exemption. So it applied not only to reproductive matters, but it said, in essence, that you could use religion as your out so that you did not have to comply with any law with which you did not agree. That's a pretty egregious uh, idea, but uh, it would not be at all surprising if that kind of an idea came forward again. Um, I know last November or whatever, I was down at Maine Family Planning's um, get-together, and there was talk of, I think it's yourself and them, and working with the ACLU to to provide abortion in Maine through Medicare, and I just didn't know if you could give us an update. Oh, I'd love is. to give an update. <laughs> so the question was about our case with the ACLU, Maine Family Planning, and Planned Parenthood uh, against the state of Maine, specifically against Commissioner Mary Mayhew, to restore public funding of abortion in Maine care. So, um, so we did file that case a year ago in November, and it's in discovery right now. So we're actually going to start deposition soon, and we expect it to possibly go to trial in the spring. So we're very optimistic that we could actually see some progress made within the next year, which I know seems kind of slow. Um, and I think that's another area to potentially be concerned about the legislature. I haven't heard any rumors to this effect, but I suppose if someone wanted to, they could somehow do something related to that litigation. I'm not sure what, but it just might provoke people. Could you describe this a little bit? Yes. At state level and not federal. Yes, right? that's right. I'm sorry. Um, so just to give it a little more detail, so the, Hyde, the federal Hyde Amendment... Um, prohibits any federal funding to pay for abortion. Um, so that means you can't have it in Medicaid, Medicare, if you're in the Peace Corps, or if you work for the federal government and you get your health insurance from them. So some states have actually decided to use their own state funding to provide abortion care um, with their own dollars. And then in other states, they've sued because they have a stronger state constitution that protects the right of privacy. And that's what we're trying to do in Maine. So if we win, Maine Care, the Medicaid program, will have to cover abortion. And right now, that covers all pregnancy-related care. Pretty much covers all health care except abortion and cosmetic procedures. So that's really the only thing that's left out. And I don't think I have to tell you all... Um, why it would be so important that it gets covered and what a burden it is for women seeking abortion care. And, and so, how did that come about? Was it legislative or was it an executive order? So it's, um, so, so it's sort of based on this federal Hyde Amendment, and so I think Maine used to cover it at the beginning. I'm looking at Abby to remind myself. Maybe for like 
seven years? For like three years. So 77 to 80, we did cover it. And then I think it was an an executive order, perhaps, that stopped it. Is there anything people can do if they are interested? This is a tough set of issues to talk about because I think it's easy for us to feel... Anxious. I, 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 I'm an educated human being. I served eight years in the Maine legislature, but I get intimidated talking about the federal courts. I think, oh, I'm not an attorney. I'm not qualified. You know, we have to just be willing to talk about this with our friends and with our neighbors, our, our work colleagues, our, and our family. Um, and one of the so I think one of the most important things that we can do is spread the word, and that includes if you're on social media. All three of our organizations are on social media, so follow us and and forward and like and share and retweet if, if tweeting is your thing. I'd like to ask you to write a letter to the local newspaper, whether it's um, the Bangor Daily News, which, as you know, is read statewide, or um, equally valuable are little weeklies because people pick those freebies up, and they, you know, people love their local local news and their letters to the editor get read. So, but the most important thing that we can do is talk about these issues. I. I have been working now in the field of women's issues for five years, but I'm still stunned whenever I am reminded that it was in 1962 that birth control was legalized. <laughs> that what? That's it. Birth control was legalized. <laughs> and we could get back to that circumstance very quickly. Yeah. Well, I can say that when I was in college in Massachusetts, unmarried women were not allowed to get birth control. And I heard Bill Baird speak at Boston University, oh, and he probably got arrested because he was telling unmarried women about birth control. I just thought of kind of another thing to add, which is... Uh, you know, clearly everyone in this room cares about reproductive rights, which is wonderful, but we know there are a lot of people in our community that care about numerous other issues, and it seems like one really hot issue right now is corporations having rights and the people having fewer rights. Citizens United. Yes, Citizens United. And there's really... This is a huge issue. Courts are a huge issue for that group of people. So if you're looking for a different talking point, that is another one to, to highlight. Um, this this Roberts Court, under Chief Justice Roberts in particular, they have done more to limit individuals' rights and to increase the rights of corporations than any other court um, in history. They have a lot more power now, and it's, it's just hugely um, significant. So that's just another area to think about as you're talking to people that might have... What, you know, something that they're passionate about might be different, but that's kind of what's exciting about Courts Matter as a coalition and as a movement. It affects all of our issues that we care about. Um, so that's why we all, we all have to come together and take action. If you're concerned about public financing for elections or climate change or the existence and enforcement of the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, there's virtually no topic... Or, or set of issues. All right, that cut off a little bit uh, quickly, but the line that ended with that uh, 
that all of those issues are relevant to the courts. And that was a panel discussion that's called that was called Our Rights at Risk. It was held in Bangor on September 29th. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. The panelists that you just heard were attorney Andrea Irwin. She's executive director of the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. And speaking last was Eliza Townsend, executive director of the Maine Women's Lobby. Judy Carl of Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights Facilitated. We'll put links to those groups up in the uh, For More Information section of the archives of today's show, which will be posted on Friday at the WERU website, weru.org. Also, be sure to catch Reproductive Left on November 1st when Eliza Townsend will be joining host Abby Strout to continue that discussion. That's Reproductive Left Tuesday, November 1st at 4.30 here on WERU. That program airs every first Tuesday of the month and is produced by Abby Strout through WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. Before we end today, we have an update on a story we've been covering here on Maine Currents and on Radioactive for several years, the mining company lawsuit against El Salvador. We spoke about it a few weeks ago when we had visitors here in the studio from El Salvador. It was announced on Friday that the people of El Salvador won the lawsuit that was brought against them by an international mining company. Pac Rim Cayman sued El Salvador for $314 million in compensation because the country wouldn't allow them to mine for gold. This is one of those cases you've heard about in warnings about free trade agreements in which countries can be sued by corporations who believe the country's laws are interfering with their profits. In this case, the gold mining company brought their complaint to the World Bank's arbitration panel. Residents of El Salvador feared that mining operations would contaminate the limited supply of clean water remaining in that country. In 2014, Meredith DeFrancesco and I accompanied a delegation from the Bangor-based group PICA that toured an old mining site in El Salvador that local residents say was never shut down properly and is still leaching contaminants into an adjacent river. We also visited towns that were working on passage of municipal anti-mining laws. And everywhere we traveled, we heard reports of threats and intimidation against anti-mining activists. In 2009, three prominent anti-mining activists were murdered, one while she was pregnant and carrying her two-year-old child. Staff at Radio Victoria, a community radio station in El Salvador, described threats by mining supporters and people they believed were working for or with the mining companies after that radio station reported on dangers associated with mining. People we spoke to in rural communities, including Bangor's sister city, Karaske, said the resistance to mining continued because the fight for clean drinking water is a life-and-death struggle. El Salvador doesn't have the infrastructure to pipe in water from other places, and most of the people there don't have the money to pay for that anyway, so they kept fighting despite the violence and intimidation. While Friday's news is seen as a victory for El Salvador, the legal battle lasted seven years and costed an estimated $12 million in addition to the lives lost, though PACRIM has been ordered to reimburse the country for most of their legal costs. The potential for more lawsuits brought by corporations against countries whose laws they believe are restricting their profits will increase if the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, trade agreement is passed. If you'd like to hear more about the people of El Salvador's resistance to metallic mining, as well as the resistance to metallic mining here in Maine, the reports we've done over the years are archived at WERU's website. Again, that's WERU.org. 
click on the Public Affairs Archives section and then do a keyword search for mining. And in the couple of minutes that we have left here today, I want to let you know about some upcoming opportunities to call in and talk about the elections. This show, Maine Currents, is normally a call-in show. We'll return to that format next week, but we have several other opportunities as well, starting with tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock at Soapbox Day. And on the Soapbox is an open mic-style call-in show. Dennis Howard facilitates, but... There's no set agenda. There aren't any guests in the studio. Each person who wants to call in can take a couple of minutes and talk about whatever they want. So if you're running for office, if you want to talk about the candidates or the campaigns or the issues on the ballot in 2016, give us a call in the soapbox. That's tomorrow morning, 10 to 11 o'clock. Friday morning from 10 to 11 o'clock, we have the Democracy Forum, which is hosted by Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters Down East and put together with a team from that group. They'll be talking about ballot questions in Maine with guests Amy Freed, professor of political science at the University of Maine, and Gil Goldthwaite. She's a columnist, retired nurse, and former independent Maine state senator. And in the second half of the program, they'll be opening the phone lines on that show for you to call in and ask questions and make comments. Next Wednesday in this time slot on Maine Currents, five, uh, 4 to 5 p.m., that's on October 26th, We'll have our multi-partisan panel back with us again. We have a Trump supporter, a libertarian, a uh, former Bernie Sanders supporter who's now leaning toward Jill, or going to vote for Jill Stein, a Jill Stein supporter, and a Hillary Clinton supporter in the studio. And we will have joining us by phone for one half hour of the program a person who is an advocate for Question 3, the background checks on firearms issue uh, that's going to be on Maine's ballot. And then in the other half hour, we'll have somebody who's an opponent, and we'll be having phone lines open so that you can call in and ask questions of either of those folks as well. That's next Wednesday on Main Currents. The following Wednesday on Main Currents, 4 to 5 o'clock again, we will have the multipartisan panel together for one last time to discuss the upcoming elections before we go to vote. The following morning, Thursday, November 3rd, from 10 to 11, we're going to have a special call-in focusing on the local elections. So if you know anyone who's running in a municipal race or a statewide race who you would like to uh, have call-in, you have a favorite candidate, you want to alert them about that, let them know. We've been in communication with some of the political parties' social media to let them know as well. And listeners, whether you're a candidate or not, if you want to talk about any of the local and statewide election issues and candidates, you can call in. Again, that's a special uh, local statewide elections call-in soapbox on Thursday morning, November 3rd from 10 to 11. Election night, Tuesday night, November 8th. You should all know when that is already, I'm sure. From 8 o'clock until at least midnight, Democracy Now! will be doing special election coverage, and we'll be covering that here on WERU as we have during at least the last two presidential elections. And if the format runs the same as it has during the last two, they'll give little breaks for us to do some local reporting. And I'll be joined by Meredith DeFrancesco and possibly a local columnist, although I cannot say the name yet because we haven't confirmed to talk about what's coming in in terms of local election results. So that'll be election night from 8 o'clock until midnight or beyond if they go long, as they have on at least one occasion in the past. And then finally, the morning after the, or the afternoon after the elections, main currents, 4 to 5 o'clock, we'll have another soapbox-style show because we'll want to hear from you, your reactions to the elections. So that's, if you didn't catch any of that, you can email me at news at weru.org, and I will send that information to you. 
but that is all we have time for today. You've been listening to Maine Currents here on WERU-FM, independent local news, views, and culture every Wednesday from 4 to 5 o'clock. I'm Amy Brown. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! coming up next, followed by Jazz Straight Ahead here on WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Support for WERU 